Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. We just watched stage six of the Tour de France. Now, the situation on GC going into the stage was Adam Yates, the British rider for Mitchelton Scott in yellow, three seconds ahead of Roglic and seven seconds ahead of Pagacha. So a Slovenian uh, provisional podium on GC. The stage promised some GC action, just looking at the profile. Not necessarily the GC riders winning the stage, but it was a pretty much a flat run in for 146 kilometers, then two Category 3 climbs, the Cap de Coste at 7.3%, and then the Col de Moles, 6.1% at 6.1Ks at 5%. Then their main climb for the day that we thought there'd be some GC action on was the Col de la Luzette, 11.7 kilometers long at 7.3%, but with the last 5Ks much steeper. Then there was a short descent, and then 8.3Ks at 4% to the summit of Monteguel. So it looked like there could be some GC action, but I'll throw to you, Benji, now to describe what happened once the neutral service vehicle put the flag down. Luckily, it was a bit different than yesterday. Yesterday, we had no action at all. We had one small attack yesterday with Osgrin, and that was basically it for the whole day. So that was definitely not amusing. Today was different. We had quite a, a vile action at the peloton with plenty of attacks that eventually formed a breakaway of some pretty good riders. Those included Daniel Os Cavagna. We had Paulus for EF, Fanavamar for CCC, Herana for Kofidis, Lutsenko for Astana, Edvald Boissenhagen for Israel Startup Nation, and Nicholas Roach for Sunweb. Now, additionally, we have an intermediate sprint in the middle of the stage. The breakaway took the majority of the points. And just before the intermediate sprint, we saw that a lot of rider attacked in the peloton. Roger Kluge he ended up taking the points of the ninth spot, so taking some points away from the rest of the peloton sprinters, who eventually sprinted for it. In the end, it was a copy of the intermediate sprints of the last few stages. So Bennett came out on top, is now indeed leading the classification still and has extended the lead on Sagan, who was again not looking too bright. I'm not sure what's up in regards to the intermediate sprint, but he does not seem to have the kick to go for it either because on these kind of stages, Bennett goes for it all out and such. So in general, another bit of a disappointment regarding Sagan. We had some doubts about the potential challenge of Bennett versus Sagan yesterday already on the podcast, but it's more and more looking like Bennett actually has somewhat of a shot at this, which is surprising since nobody was thinking that pre-Tour de France, but during the TDF, it's true as hell moving that way slowly but surely. Nonetheless, in regards to the stage itself, we had the Cap de Coste as the first KOM. Then after that, we started the actual Monteguel climb. Nothing too much happened on the uh, Col de Moraes climb, to be honest. It was just Ineos setting pace with, I think it was Dylan Van Baal from memory. They seemed to put about a minute or more into the breakaway group, and it looked like that breakaway was going to get brought back at that stage. But then no one really got dropped out of the breakaway either. There were some surges from Nielsen Powers, but it got covered by Nico Roche and other riders. Then they got onto the main part of the climb where we thought there was going to be real splits, the... uh, Col de la Luzette, 
and then there was a fair bit of action. It was Daniel Loss pretty much accepting that he'd be dropped from the breakaway. Edvard Bosenhagen dropped as well. Paulus once again attacking the birthday boy for education first. Cavania losing the wheel. And yeah, he was pretty much done at that point. Paulus got brought back. He attacked multiple times, but he kept being brought back by the Roche or uh, Lutsenko. It was actually Jesus Herrada who kept getting dropped when there were those accelerations, which I was kind of surprised by. I thought he would have actually been stronger than Nico Roche initially. Then Greg Van Avermaet, he kind of worked his way back into that group and then tried to set a reasonable tempo for them, a group being him, Lutsenko, Paulus, and Roche, and Harada then coming back to them when they sort of slowed down and were looking at each other, Roche not really setting pace, looking at Lutsenko. Lutsenko was definitely the favourite out of this breakaway. I mean, the market said that too, definitely the strongest climber and overall rider in that break on this sort of terrain. Paulus attacked once again, uh, well, dropping Roche for good, Harada kept actually working his way back in. Greg Van Avermaet somehow stayed with Lutsenko and Paulus. Lutsenko was pacing Paulus for a fair bit, and then they started sort of arguing. Well, it was actually a pretty one-sided argument. It was Lutsenko. I don't know what language he was speaking to Paulus in, but he was gesturing at him a fair bit to uh, to pull through, which Paulus didn't, and he wasn't playing games because he then got dropped pretty shortly after with maybe 5Ks left to go on the climb when it really started to ramp up. All the while this is happening in the break, which sort of all those attacks instigated by Paulus and then Lutsenko going clear on his own, all of the while that was happening, the sort of surges and slowing down and the looking at each other, Ineos were at the front pacing on the Col de la Luzette with Dylan Van Baal at the base, and they were losing time to the breakaway. So it's impossible really to calculate how quickly riders are going on a climb in terms of what's per kilo when you're looking at it in real time, but there's a few indicators to suggest whether they're driving it at a hard pace or a pretty moderate pace. The first and obvious being are people being dropped from that group. Yes, it was no, pretty much no one was getting dropped when Van, Van Baal was pulling and then Castroviejo was pulling. It was a massive group, you know, not just the GC guys, but they all the GC guys then had their second and third domestiques there looking pretty comfortable too. And the second key sort of indicator is the fact that Lutsenko and Paulus were gaining time on them whilst playing around a little bit on the climb. So that gap went out. It, it was at like 2 minutes and 44, and then that expanded out to 3 minutes and 5 seconds when Lutsenko went clear. Castroviejo was pulling in the peloton, um, but not very hard. Everyone was looking pretty comfortable. Lutsenko went clear and then went to the took the bonus seconds at the top of Col de la Luzette. Looked really good. High cadence, looking strong on the bike. Jesus Harada was actually then went round Greg Van Avermaet and was the guy who came second on the stage, actually. Just kept just wanted it, you know, wanted that second position and just kept burying himself where the others dropped off, even though initially he didn't look as strong. And there was that short descent into the final eight kilometers and four percent up to the Monteguel climb, and Lusenko finished at the top of Lizette with like a three minutes and fifteen second gap to the peloton. And once he got over the top of that climb, it was clear he was going to win the stage, and win the stage he did. But before we sort of talk about what happened with the GC group and Fabio Aru, were you surprised, Benji, that all the other GC groups? And or GC riders and teams and even other riders who missed out on the break were content to let Ineos set a very moderate pace 
on the whole Montego climb? The peloton had already said, yeah, you can go to the breakaway, pretty much halfway the stage, and that became clear after the Col de Mouraise. Now, I do believe that I expected some action, maybe for Pogacar to respond to that arrow attack, because otherwise that arrow attack was pretty pointless, and it came out to be exactly that. So I expected something from Pogacar, maybe. Nonetheless, then again, where would you be riding to? Because you would be having a three-man Ineos train, and five people i think still from jumbo there to take you back so it's a bit of a double-sided question here because i on one end expected attacks but on the other end i would not know who would have a certain incentive to attack on this climb the luzette because they would probably be taking back just after it and that's why i feel that a lot of people just were a bit too scared to do it today because they might not have taken too much time anyway. So maybe spare those energy, save that energy for one of the next stages that potentially has more of a chance. But then again, which of the next stages that would be, I honestly don't know, because we have stage 8 with Kazan to Ludenviel with those three mountain ranges. So maybe they're saving energy for that one. But after that, it's looking like the next proper mountain stage is near stage 15 already. So... I am in a bit of doubt whether it's a good choice to leave these chances. So here's my view on why nothing happened with the GC riders. And it all comes down to Jumbo Visma. So Jumbo Visma define what happens in these stages. If you know Jumbo Visma did nothing, but they still had Sepp Kuss there. And if Roglic has Sepp Kuss and Bennett around him, then... Guillaume Martin, Thibaut Pino, Emmanuel Buchmann, they're not going to attack in the first week because, or Pagacha even, because if they attack, they know that Sepkus is going to bring them back in like 30 seconds and make them look stupid and they'll just wasted that energy. So with Jumbo Visma having that strength in domestiques around Roglic, they can ride really passively. And I think the decision was made by Jumbo Visma to not do anything on today's stage. Now, I don't know if Koos was a little bit banged up from the crash yesterday and maybe they were tired. I don't think that was the case. I thought they were fine. And Roglic had a pretty much an active recovery day yesterday. So a pretty, you know, a climb that wasn't that steep, undulating, then a short descent and then like 8Ks at 4% where having a draft would be really important. They, had, they would have a numerical advantage if they could put pressure on the Ineos domestiques. I think it was pretty short-sighted to not be aggressive on today's stage. Like, I understand that theoretically Roglic doesn't have to gain any time on Egan Bernal from here on out and that if they're on equal time or whatever, or, or Roglic has a 10-second lead, then Planche de Belfi time of trial, you'd expect Roglic to win it. He wins the tour. But Bernal has the Alps coming up. Or that you know they're in this race. It still will be over two thousand meters. Do you want to take the chance when I think Ineos are vulnerable, and I think Ineos were. This was a great result for Ineos. They're probably not Sivakov. By the way, we didn't mention Sivakov should probably retire from the race. He got dropped like at the base of the uh, first climb on the Monteguel on the easy climb. So they got no one that's really on the level to support Bernal. That's as good as. Bennett or Coos or Wafanart really. Carapaz isn't looking that good either. You've got quite a long climb and undulating as well. Why not try and put pressure on Bernal? 
maybe they're worried about Guillaume Martin and Bookman and all the, all the other GC favourites. But, uh, yeah, I think people are saying the same thing on Twitter. A lot of people we respect on, on Twitter, Benji, they're saying similar things about if you lose the Tour de Egan Bernal by 10 to 15 seconds, you're going to – and the second rider is what La Flamme Rouge said. They're going to look back at this stage and think, wow, Ineos were vulnerable there and we did nothing. But – if you're Thibaut Pinot, Richie Port, Guillaume Martin, Bookman, I don't blame you for not attacking or Pagacha. I don't blame them because the reality is they were just going to get brought back by Jumbo Visma. And I don't know how Roglic feel, felt today. You know, maybe he just didn't feel that good when he woke up this morning. Um, who knows? But it seems like an opportunity missed for them to at least test out the condition of Ineos. And I know Ineos had numbers, but... Those numbers would disappear pretty quickly when Sepp Kuz starts driving it at 6.6 watts per kilo. You know, Castroviejo, Kwiatkowski, and Carapaz can't, they can't keep up with that for very long at all. So um, I was surprised Yumba Bisma didn't do anything, but it's not the end of the world. Maybe teams don't want to carry the yellow jersey for all tour. I don't, I don't know. Um, you'd, I'd have to ask them directly. But we mentioned briefly Fabio Aru attacked. Uh, he was the sort of weird attack of the day. He attacked out of the peloton, the only guy to attack out of the peloton on that Col de la Luzette climb. TV, the TV cameras didn't show him for like 10 straight minutes, so I thought he might have been gobbled up, but apparently he just sat like 30 seconds ahead of the peloton for like 15 minutes and then got brought back. We thought he was sort of going out there for Pagacha to then bridge to him, but that clearly wasn't the plan, so that was a bit weird. And then in the in the finale, well, Lutsenko obviously won the stage, and then Harada came second a minute after him. In the finale, Arkea Sanzik moved up, Ineos moved up. After doing nothing all stage, in the last 300 metres, the GC teams decided to like sprint for the line, even though there were no bonus seconds on offer. Um, Greg Van Arbon and Martin Nielsen Palace, I think, maybe took the third position as well, so third and fourth. They managed to stay ahead of the peloton. And Alaphilippe sprinted, out of the peloton with like 100 metres left to take one second on the line. Um, why do you think he did that, Benji? Because I, I don't have, I'm lost for words. Honestly, maybe a mental aspect. I don't think that it's really to gain the time because he probably knew that he wasn't going to gain five to 10 seconds there, but you never know, obviously. One second is obviously not too much. Malcolm Molimo was the one to actually close it down, which was quite unexpected for me. I didn't expect Molimo to do that. I don't see why Molimo would have to do that. He doesn't get any gain from that either. Nonetheless, Alaphilippe, I'd say he lost the yellow jersey yesterday. He wants to get some courage out of everything. He wants to show the French public that he's still there. He's still fighting. Maybe it is that mental aspect, but it's obviously not going to gain him too much. Yeah, I don't really um, I don't really know why he did it, except, yeah, just a mental... But it's not like it was even a hard... They weren't even at their limit before then. No one was even contesting the sprint. I think they were all expecting to just roll over the line. So it's just a little bit weird. Um, yeah, a bit strange. Balcomolima, one funny moment from the climb, I think, was it when they got their last bottles. His, I don't know what his soigneur did, but Balcomolima was very, very cranky at his soigneur, which made me laugh. Uh, so no movement on GC. Adam Yates retains the yellow jersey. Alexei Lutsenko, the Kazakh national champion for Astana, takes a pretty dominant stage win from the breakaway. Benji called him on Twitter, so... 
Honestly, me and Benji are on absolute fire at the moment with the predictions. Benji called Litsenko from the break before the stage had started, I think, and in the preview and in the preview podcast. So hats off to Benji. But yeah, other than that, my producer at ITV, Joe, just texted me saying, yeah, don't bother, mate. No video for today. And uh, I pretty much agree with him. So unless you have any final thoughts on this stage, Benji? Not really. There isn't too much to say GC-wise. It was a fun battle in the breakaway, but that was pretty much it for the stage. Yeah, and even in the breakaway, it was clear that, like, I thought, oh, well, Litsenko's got this because unless Harada is on a magic form today, he Litsenko's clearly the best climber of this group. You know, the, his performance on Montmont, Touchelier, Renard, behind Quintana earlier before lockdown in February is proof of that, although he hadn't looked as good uh, after lockdown Litsenko. But... Let's move on to stage six, or sorry, stage seven. That was stage six. Stage seven, Milato Lavar tomorrow. A rolly course profile. Uh, starts with a category three climb, 2.9Ks at 6.1%, 8.5Ks into the stage. Rolly climbs, sort of 5Ks at 3.5%. Then a long climb, 15Ks at 4%, 1K at 6%. So yeah, rolly climbs, but then the last, oh, 50 kilometers of this 168 long kilometer stage is pretty much flat um, apart from a 1k climb which is two and a half percent in the with seven kilometers to go that shouldn't be a problem for the sprinters at all you'd think Benji you're the you always like to predict a breakaway but you think breakaway or bunch sprint tomorrow I believe that the sprinters can survive this called the Peronong in the middle there so on paper I would say that a quick step or something like that would be controlling the pace and they'd be going for a sprint at the end of the stage. Yeah, definitely. And I think I'm seeing there's a intermediate sprint points with 57.5 Ks to go. That's before that Col de Peronoc uh, climb. Be interesting. Yes, it's going to be a bunch sprint tomorrow, but I am actually very interested now in the green jersey competition. It seems to be a real competition and the tactics in that are becoming even more important. And, you know, I'll be actually focusing on that a lot more than I ordinarily would do. I agree with you. I think it'll be a bunch sprint tomorrow. We've seen the peloton generally seems to be riding quite conservatively. And do you want to mention something you meant you spoke about on Twitter, Benji? Uh, you wrote a thread about why none of the French wildcard teams attacked yesterday in the sort of flat stage. Why do we not see the typical TV time suicide break from the French pro Conti teams? It's somewhat of a guess, but I believe that each wildcard hit team here has an incentive to not really go in the breakaway on these stages because we've got our KO8 Quintana, we've got BNB with a sprinter in their team, that's Kaká, and we've also got Total with Bonifazio, who's also sprinting for these stages, so that's I think why they don't do it. Obviously, I do believe that they can spare one guy in that team just to go into the breakaway, but yesterday we saw Thomas Dijan pretty much clearly go to Azirain, the only attacker of the day, and say that he wasn't going to work with him, just sit in his wheel, so I believe that, yeah, the sprinter teams just made sure a bit that there was no breakaway yesterday, but let's hope we've got one tomorrow. Otherwise, it's going to be a boring stage again, I'm afraid. Who My pick for tomorrow's stage, I can't remember what my preview pick was, but my pick is Caleb Ewan. I can confirm that we both said it would be a bunch sprint and <laughs> gave no names, so we can basically say whatever we want at this point because our prediction is most likely going to be right. All right, so let's get to a couple of hashtag LRCP questions that people have fired into us on Twitter. The first one is, 
from Roma Le- uh, Leiper, Leiper, sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. What is your opinion in scaling up the amount of bonus seconds? Consider a queen stage with 30 seconds on offer on the first climb to break things up early and force people to chase the break. Would this break the spirit of the race too much? I'll, I'll go first on that. I think I'm not sure about having 30 seconds on offer on the first climb, but what would have happened, Benji, if today on Col de la Luzette there was 30 seconds available up available as bonus seconds on the top of Lizette. Well, firstly, I think the breakaway would have been chased down by Jumbo Visma. Um, 30 seconds is, it is a lot different to 10 seconds. Like it makes the energy cost and investment from the domestiques and the GC rider to go for it. Just, well, you know, stating the obvious three times as valuable, but 30 seconds is just such a big gap. That would have taken Roglic from like 10 to 40 out ahead of Bernal if Yamavisna went to go for it. So would I like them to do that? I think it would be interesting on certain stages. So, yes, I'm tentatively in favour, but they'd need to make sure they did it in the right places. What do you think, Benji? It very much depends on the concept because you could say 30 seconds for the first guy, but what does that mean for the second, third, fourth, fifth? If, for example, it's 30 seconds for the first guy, 25 for the second, 20 for the third, then we've got 15 seconds or something for the fourth, and it just keeps scaling down, then it's going to be less worth for a Roglic to send this team up front because the next five steps will be the other GC leaders. So the real question is whether the difference between the GC leaders' seconds that they gain is big enough to have it worth fighting with your whole squad to get those points on top, those seconds on top, then I'd say maybe it won't go the way we think it would. And they would just say, well, let's have the break, have it. No one in the peloton has to fight for it then. And then it's going to be just the same as we have today. So it has to be a, a very well thought and intricate concept to make sure that there is still an incentive to go for it. So it has to be worth for the first rider compared to the second, third, and so forth, in my honest opinion. I'll make it simpler. Winner takes all. 30 seconds, second gets zero bonus seconds. <laughs> yeah, there's, that's your a good so- idea. there's your solution. That, you know, that incentive. Then Alaphilippe, maybe on Col de la Lozette, gets 30 seconds and it properly spices up the GC. I don't know. That's how I would do it, but I kind of like complete chaos. So <laughs> probably not the people that should be designing things like this. Second question from uh, Wout Verist, who he's you know pretty knowledgeable about cycling himself. Wout, he he often gives me suggestions for things. What do you make of the current level of Elia Viviani? What went wrong with him? Today he dropped on the little hill two kilometers from the finish. This is talking about stage uh, stage five yesterday. Do you want to attack this one first, Benji? Since he left Quickstep to go to Cofidis, he doesn't have a proper lead out anymore. Sure, you could say he has Consoni, but meh, hasn't really shown too much. And in general, he just doesn't have the uh, the quick step team around him to help him out to get towards the finish line. And next to that, when he actually is in a sprint, he just doesn't do much because he doesn't have that lead out that he had last year that brought him to the perfect position to actually win the sprint. So I believe it's both the team that is around him and the fact that he doesn't seem to be in a good form because even if he was... In last year's form, for example, the one in the European Championships, he would have survived yesterday. And 
he didn't. So there's clearly something up with the form. And additionally, of course, the confidence aspect to it. I always thought Elie Viviani was massively overrated. He's getting paid 1.8 million euro at Cofidis. Obviously, like clearly looking like he's massively overpaid. If I want to provide a basketball analogy, it's like when Steve Nash was on the Phoenix Suns and, you know, was just the assist leader in the NBA back, you know, multiple years. If he'd have like a wing player on his team, that wing player would, you know, because the pace they played at would average, you know, maybe 16 points a game and, and you have pretty good numbers. But the reality was that it was just Steve Nash making that, that player look good. And teams would then, you know, that guy would become a free agent. Other teams would then overpay that, that, uh, that wing player. And then in a different environment, they'd actually show how good they really were, which wasn't that good. The same thing is the case with the Dekernic Quickstep lead-out train. How many riders, Benji, have gone from being led out by the Quickstep lead-out left quick step and then looked better and won more races afterwards. Just doesn't seem to happen. We should all know it by now. It's a common mistake to avoid. And I also thought Viviani wasn't that good even with the quick step lead out as well. And, you know, yes, Covetous lead out is probably not as good. Consoni is quite good though. And, yeah, I think him getting dropped on that little rise, 2K from the finish, he can't blame that on his lead out. That seems to be on him and his legs. So, yeah, watch this space. Viviani struggling to even get top 10s in the group sprints in uh, this year's Tour de France. And last question from Growth Games, hashtag LRCP. Who do we think will come good in week three? Thinking GC, but also breakaway winners and comp specialists. Will Bardet go for the jersey again? Um, We'll just answer the first one. Who do we think will come good in week three quickly? I don't really know. Um, I think Roglic will be fine in week three. I don't think there'll be any coming good. Maybe Bookman will improve a little bit, um, but he looked okay today. It's hard to say. Maybe Higita will improve, but I still expect the main people to be there. Um, Roglic, Bernal, Pino, etc. on GC. What do you think, Benji? I wouldn't necessarily call it coming good, but I believe that with the route that is here for the Tour de France, we won't really be able to see until stage 15, who's actually really strong in the mountains. So I wouldn't necessarily call it come good, but I think we're going to recognize at stage 15 and 17 mainly who's actually good at this Tour de France. So before that, we're all just speculating about the form of Buchmann, the form of Ebernal versus Roglic and such. But in the end, we have limited stages to go on at the moment in this Tour de France. And... Limited climbing summit finishes because, again, today they wasted the chance. We had two days ago that it was basically 15 people sprinting for it and not the perfect summit to actually do something on for most of the GC riders. I am kind of waiting until they have a proper battle to speculate properly because now it's pure speculation, I feel. So, yeah, I believe we're going to recognize the true power of certain riders in the third week and not necessarily see them come good suddenly. So some quick transfer news before we sign off. Amon Grondal Janssen, the Norwegian rider for Jumbo Visma. He's quite, what is he, Benji, like a ruler-style rider? Um, he was pulling on the podio for Wad van Aert in Milan San Remo. That was when he was still Norwegian national champion and he wasn't actually able to contest the national championships in 2020 because he got roped into the Jumbo Visma Tour de France team once Kreuzweig went out with his... Uh, his injury. Anyway, he's it's been announced that he's signing with Mitchelton Scott for 2021 onwards. Um, 
yeah, pretty solid young Ishrida. Mitch and Scott obviously signed Michael Matthews. So I think he'll be there going there to support Michael Matthews' ambitions in races like uh, Milano San Remo. Have you seen too much of uh, Grundel Janssen? I don't have too much of an opinion on him, Benji. I believe that I heard that he was going to be uh, the leader on Cobble Classics for Mitchell and Scott. Really? Because we had him going 16th in Paris-Roubaix last year, okay. which is quite a spectacular result for the uh, pretty young rider. Still 19 for Namla with Nisblad. I'm not sure about his results in 2020 at the start. We didn't have too much to go on, but apparently he DNF'd Omla with Nisblad because of an injury. So, yeah, we can't go too much into that either. I believe indeed that he's going to be much help for Matthews, potentially even be in his lead out, like you mentioned. And additionally, I believe that he can be good on the cobbles. They don't exactly have a proper cobble team, so it's an addition to it. And who knows? He's talented. He's shown it, but he's had to work for a lot of people so far. So maybe a bit of a promotion for him. He said he wanted to leave, and this is where he goes to. So I'm looking forward to see what he gives, and hopefully it's some good stuff. Yeah, he's a pretty big guy, like 1.87 meters tall, over 80 kilos. He came fifth in the uh, London Surrey Classic, which is a world tour race, I think. Uh, usually comes down to a sprint. He came fifth in the Britannia Classic, which Michael Matthews won in 2020. He, uh, Rondell Janssen came fifth in 2019. So second on GC in the uh, four days of Dunkirk. So that's the sort of rider he is, Cobble Classics. And I think he's going to be a pretty good help for Matthews as well at Michelin Scott. So thumbs up for that signing from me. I think it's a pretty good signing. Any last thoughts, Benji, before we sign off uh, on stage six or anything else going on in cycling at the moment? That's honestly basically it. We've got a pretty relaxed stage tomorrow. Unfortunately, the last were pretty relaxed as well. And I hope to see a masterful sprint at the end that we hopefully have some good stuff to analyze in. Nonetheless, I hope it's a safe sprint. We've had quite a few discussions about safety and penalties lately, so let's hope we can avoid that. I want to thank you again for all the uh, support we've been having on this one. Really enjoying this podcast, and I've seen Lantern be happy for once in his life, so apparently he is as well. So I guess we can uh, sign off properly now and say ciao. No, I'm not going to sign off yet. I've got one more thing to say. Let this, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm named on this podcast too. Benji on Twitter... He went out and stated in public, I nearly forgot this, that Pierre Roland is going to win a stage in this year's Tour de France. Now, I don't know if there's some sort of WADA program for amateur podcasters in their 20s, but there needs to be because, yeah, I need, I need you all to get at Benji about that. Um, maybe he just wants the meme to come alive. I think that's really the motivation for him saying that. Um, but, yeah, I'm a little bit worried about him. Maybe we've been working too hard with the podcast. If you've liked our... I have to say, on Fuego predictions so far, um, and Caseball hasn't won a stage yet, by the way, so chill out, then make sure to drop us a rating on your podcast player. I think it's mainly Apple that has it. So if you don't listen on Apple and you can't do it on your podcast player and it's not too much hassle, I guess you could do it on Apple as well. But, yeah, we're loving the support. We're getting way more downloads than we expected. And, um, yeah, it's been fantastic so far. So we'll see you tomorrow. Ciao. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 